Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm hanging out in Chicago today with Ted C. Fishman, who is a veteran journalist, a best-selling New York Times writer, uh, author of the book uh, China Inc., and of course, uh, Shock of Grey. Uh, Ted, it's, well, it's great to meet you. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. I know we traverse a lot of the same territory, intellectually and <laughs> geographically. Yeah, I, I, I was actually I was actually admiring your shirt, because it actually looks like one of those wonderful shirts you see in, in Southeast Asia quite a lot. It is a batik shirt made by Reza the Tailor in Jakarta, <laughs> my favorite tailor. Um, I liked him so much, I spent so much time there, he was wondering whether I was a spy. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's safe to assume that like Shanghai in the 1930s, everyone in Indonesia today is at some level working as a spy. But that's right. Well, the, but spying's legal there, so what's the difference? <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit about Indonesia later, later but I, I think where I'd like, love to start is the subject of your most recent book, which is Shock of Grey, which of course is aging. Given that I'm about to turn 40 myself very shortly, it's a subject that's been weighing heavily on my mind at least, um, although my wife is convinced that I still think I'm a 20-year-old. <laughs> but how, how dramatic is the change in aging in the world at the moment? I mean, what is this just... Is it, is it a bit like climate change? It's something that you know people like to, to worry about, but is there fundamentally a, a tipping point going on in the world's population at the moment? It's all of that. It's all of that. Um, I'm really amused to hear you say, I'm thinking about aging because I'm turning 40. You know, <laughs> I, I think when I started thinking about aging, I would have said, Mike, you're halfway home, and you would have cringed. But you're not halfway home now. You're only about four-fifths of the way home. Uh, because in the last 20 years, people, the average lifespan of somebody, of a healthy person, is lengthened by about five years. Right. Um, so I've got five extra years to be invalid. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. So let's see, if we talk for 30 minutes, I guess you're going to get about six minutes extra of life. That's good. It's time well spent. Time well spent. Um, you know, I, I do think people in a lot of ways are hardwired against thinking about aging uh, because we have this picture in our mind of being decrepit, of being forgotten, of being lost. Uh, first of all, the length of our useful and engaged lives is going up. And I don't think we should ever lose sight of the fact that a longer life is what most of human beings have wanted forever. Right. Right? I mean, think about the first medicine men or shaman in the world. What were they doing? They were trying to get people to live longer. The, the ancient Chinese mystics who live on top of mountains digesting jade. <laughs> That's. I mean, we wouldn't be eating tomatoes or chili peppers unless people were figuring out a way to live forever. So, so <laughs> tomatoes were linked to longevity. Well, the search for the fountain of youth was. So right. the discovery of the new world. Right. Uh, was all linked to longevity and um, you know philosopher's stones you know th this is what we want this is the treasure that we've wanted forever now we have it you know so um, you know there's a economist he died a couple years ago Robert Fogel Nobel Prize winner at the University of Chicago um, and he did a calculation on longevity he said for 4,000 years people have basically lived the same amount of time yeah 
And only since the 1890s has the age of human beings been creeping up. But it's been more than creeping up lately. Over the last century, we're gaining between one and a half and two years of life every decade. And somebody who lives to 60 now has a about average chance of living 17 more years if you're a man, but a 50-50 chance of living into their 90s also. Right, so, and it, it seems like there's lots of people now in their 90s and even hundreds, but yeah. it seems like 120 is the hard stop. Yeah. Uh, aside from that famous you know, French woman uh, who died at 122, there's no one who's made it to 130. No, not yet, not yet. And um, I hope that person works until they're 123. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think what's interesting here is not so much you have outliers living a long time. What you're saying here is, is that the vast majority of populations with access to good health care and lifestyle should expect to live much longer than we have in the past. Yeah, you don't even need all that much good health care. You need antibiotics right. uh, and you need a healthful environment. Public health is much better medicine than individual medicine. Now, individual medicine might take us past 120 once we figure out how to rewire our genetics or have nanobots coursing through our body fixing our cells. But for now, the best medicine in the world is public health. So living around healthy people, having good water, good air, that makes you live longer. Literacy is one of the best medicines mankind has ever devised because you could read how to stay healthy. You could read where not to walk, where not to cross into the subway. You could read the nutritional information on a can of soup, on a stick of gum. Uh, you could figure out how to better take care of your children. One of the most powerful um, ways to combat infant mortality is to teach mothers to read. Right. I, and I just thought literacy in the internet was just creating more and more uh, germophobes and hypochondriacs. <laughs> well, it may be doing that. I wonder, that'd be interesting to know whether there's a longevity boost from hypochondria. There might be. <laughs> I, I, I remember a, there, was, there was a doctor and he had a plaque uh, in, his, in his practice. I went to see him and he says, I refuse to treat married couples, athletes, or people who spend too much time on the internet. <laughs> you know, with the presumption being that all three were hypochondriacs. And he just That's funny. But he, we he might be getting a public it. health benefit from that. Like if they're making the rest of our environment cleaner, but with their obsessions, then we benefit. <laughs> it, it, it's, it is interesting. And I, and I, one of the things you wrote about in your book was that one of the consequences in America of people getting older was that they would have to rely increasingly on countries that had younger skewed demographics. Yeah. Uh, but even those countries themselves are in flux, right? I yeah, mean, so one of the weird things that happens is that is that the aging world goes shopping for youth. Right. So you could say that one of the propellants of development in the developing world is the cost of doing business in the aging world. So if you think that parts of East Asia, Japan, um, most of Europe, North America were aging faster than the rest of the world, they were also the first investors in the developing world in order to create export economies that replicated the manufacturing that was too expensive to do. Right. So there's this global age arbitrage that goes around the world. But a weird feature of that, Mike, is that the places that are identified as the next best, youngest place in the world to have this kind of social reproduction and industrial reproduction of what you had in your country and want to jettison, those new places age far faster than you did. So uh, Japan took 50 years to age, you know, France took more than 100 years to become an aging, uh, when, once aging started to 
to add 14 years of life and then 20 years of life. China is going to make this journey in 12 years. Right. Um, and what, what, what factors lead to the acceleration of aging in certain countries? Is it, is it the number of children they tend to have? They're mostly good things that lead to the acceleration of aging. Um, and as I just said, aging itself is a good thing. Right. But there's two kinds of aging. Maybe we should get that out of the way first. There's the aging of you as a person. How long do you live? But then there's the aging of a place. And places age differently than people because what determines the age of a place is the mix of young and old people. So if the mix is less young and more old, then the place is aging. So in the world overall, the median age right now is around 29, it's pushing to 39. If you pick any group under 29, it's getting smaller, and any group over 29 is getting bigger. So if you have big cohorts, they tend to accelerate the overall aging of a place. Big older cohorts. Yes. Right. Or even right. big younger cohorts will tend to can all get old quickly. Yeah, it provided people aren't having children, which they won't if they industrialize and urbanize. Right. And I guess this is the risk with China. People often you know, like to quip that the risk for China is that it gets old before it gets rich. That's right. That's right. And um, the reason it's getting old is because it's urbanizing. And, you know, right now, 250 million people have moved from country to city. China expects it to be 400 million. When people get to the city, they find their life as a, human beings are really smart at this. I'm really good at it. Um, it's like, oh, my life's so expensive now. I can't, I, I can't spend it on other people. So they don't. Chinese who are urbanized, they stop sending money home to their parents, despite all the mythology about kinship values and everything. Some of which is real, but when you look at the actual numbers of how long do Chinese men send money home to their families in the countryside, it's only six years. Right. Then they stop because. They get a wife, they might get a kid, The going to school is expensive, they need to spend time at work, and the women are also emancipated. This is the other good news that's embedded into the story. So as women get educated, they enter the workforce, they invest in their own lives, their fertility window shrinks. So this is the number one propellant of aging society, was that shrinking fertility window. So you might want three kids. If you poll women, most places in the world, they tend to cluster around two and a half kids is the number that they want. They have a very hard time getting to two. They often have a hard time getting to one. And it's because they're going to school, they're working, they're investing in their career. They don't start until they're in their mid-30s, and by that time, it's hard to get to two and a half, three kids. Um, you just can't get there. But this is an extraordinary shift for China that's, you know, once had the one-child policy or so terrified of uh, kind of Malthusian prophecies of population doom that now they're actually desperately trying to get people to have children. Yeah, they're having and this I even huge... Seen, like in Shanghai, I remember that the government opened, was opening up sex shops to try and encourage people. Shanghai to... is an amazing story. Shanghai is the demographically the oldest city, big city in the world. Um, people in Shanghai live on average longer than people in Japan. Really? And the one-child policy there would be a pro-natal policy in Shanghai. They're not even at one child per two families demographically. It is very, very rapidly becoming a gerontocracy or a geron whatever. It's not a tocracy. Well, I guess China is kind of a gerontocracy, <laughs> but Shanghai is really an old place. Uh, we've seen in Japan the devastating economic consequences of of countries that are aged. I, I mean, I, I'm always amazed at the sort of the, the gerontology industry that's developed over there. I mean, I, I think Yahoo for a while even had a service called Yahoo Ending, 
where, yeah. where they, they would offer you a subscription-based service to close all your accounts and send a final farewell notice. Oh, wow. Well, that would end the scam of getting Japanese Social Security until you're 180. <laughs> but, but, but I'm wondering, what, what does a world look like where most of us are old? Um, I think it looks less grim than we imagine. Um, From the perspective of of the old people or the young people? Just overall. um, Maybe, you know, young people perceive age differently than old people do. But they, but it's really just a matter of time shifting. Like when you ask old people, what, when do they think is old? They might say 85. But if you ask a young person when they think is old, they might think it's 65. Uh, but all the characteristics are the same. Um, but those numbers shift as you get older and older, you're willing. And there's, there's logic to that. And this is why the aging world won't look as bad as we think. So in just 20 years, uh, I just came across this statistic, it astounds me. In just 20 years, the morbidity, which is the incidence of disease, for 80-year-olds today is what it was for 60-year-olds a generation ago. Right. I mean, that means your chances of getting sick at 80 are roughly the same as a person getting sick at 60 in 1995. Pretty astounding, right? So when people say, I feel younger than than my age, they're actually reporting a fact. They're younger than what they thought they would feel like at that age. Of course, that does suggest maybe rethinking when we stop working yeah because you can't really have people now living for another 30 years not doing anything no and I don't think this is a point that people really challenge me on a lot which is how do you keep people working longer but I think over time we're learning that people don't want to feel they have nothing to do after age 62 or 65 yeah Americans tend to work up until around age 67 they work longer than most people in the Western world, they work less long than people in East Asia. And it all relates to how well-pensioned you are. I, I often encounter very capable, very intelligent, former captains of industry who in their 60s are now driving cars. Oh yeah, well they feel <laughs> it see a little it's bit. It's interesting and, and like I'm, I'm always very respectful to the people, whoever's picking me up in a car because generally when I ask them, like, they, they were a CEO of a company. 15 years ago you know but they just don't want to be sitting around the house now yeah. they, want, they want to be doing something I don't know if it relates but you know we are the most durable things in our lives you know we live longer than nations we live longer than companies the the average life expectancy of a fortune 500 <laughs> firm is quite a bit less than the life expectancy of a person <laughs> in the developed world that's very true you know so maybe that CEO isn't just driving a car because he wants to talk pe- to people and be deferential to someone for a change <laughs> well I mean what, what does maybe he's at a reversal I mean, you know what does concern me a little is where the ability for us to live longer intersects with technology led um, obsolescence of, of people in the workforce mm. I mean, at the very time when we perhaps need people to go back to work is the time when jobs are being increasingly replaced by technology. Yeah. Um, I yeah. mean, there's, there's the positive view of that, which means that we all will need to work less because of technology, so we can have uh, wealthier, leisure-filled lives. But the other is that we won't be able to sustain the few people that actually need work. Don't you think there's a dynamic between the two, though? It's like Definitely. the aging societies are the ones that are most avid for robotics. Well, Japan's a great example of yeah. that. Yeah. I, I think one of the, the biggest reasons they led research in that area is because they 
they're afraid that no one's going to be looking after them when they're old. Yeah. Yeah. And also they're afraid of young... It's also their way to compete with cheap young labor abroad. Right. Um, so our answer to Chinese cheap labor, which isn't so cheap anymore, but along the way our answer to Chinese cheap labor and Japan's answer has been automation. Um, and manufacturing employees will do almost anything they can to avoid adding a person <laughs> uh, because the cumulative cost of a person over their work life is very high. Uh, robots, you know, they depreciate over time. Human beings appreciate over time. And the Chinese may be the ones who perfect the Japanese vision, you know, of fully autonomous factories that work, operate in total d darkness. I was at the at Volkswagen's largest factory in the world right now, which is in Chengdu, China. Oh, what was that like? It was a ghost in a machine. It, there were here you are, biggest biggest factory of the world's second largest automaker. I, I don't know since Dieselgate, but once the world's biggest or second biggest automaker in a giant Chinese city that is on the make and is getting a lot of. Um, transplanted Chinese industry to move there from the East Coast and yet you go into this factory and human beings are hard to find. It is so thoroughly automated even in China. And, and what were the human beings doing there? Were they mainly just looking after the machines? Yeah, mostly looking after the machines or maybe they were doing some front office tasks, mostly staring at screens. Um, you know, it used to be when I was reporting China Inc initially in 2003 which was my first trip there I went to an auto company and I was astounded how Chinese automakers took machines out of the factory because human beings were so much cheaper than any bit of capital equipment right that game is completely over and reversed in China although that is a trend you see in India to some extent oh that's interesting yeah yeah, yeah. maybe with Chinese companies yes <laughs> <laughs> but 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 it, what are these cities like I, I mean if you've got these tier two, tier three cities that are going to be these meccas of automation and robotics, they'll actually be depopulated to some extent. Yeah, well, there's that's interesting. You know, Beijing right now. There's an article in uh, the Wall Street Journal this week about Beijing's project to depopulate the core of the city. Right. You know, to close the markets, get people to move out. They don't want any small businesses. It seems like the opposite of everything we've learned about urbanism. Uh, but you know. China wants. China says explicitly, and people have told me they they want to be able to make all the same mistakes we have, <laughs> um, and they should be able to make all the same mistakes we have. But um, but it's crazy to move away from an urban center in China now. I mean, there's just the benefits of being a Chinese urbanite versus somebody in the rural countryside or a peasant farmer are so uh, outsized. Um, but when you go to Chengdu, what you'll see, for example, is there are six large universities that would be bigger than any universities in the United States, turning out tens of thousands of tech graduates a year going into the knowledge sector. And, and China hopes that you know, it can shift its economy from one which is so dependent on smokestack industries to one that is much more engaged in the world's knowledge economy. It's already the world's biggest tech manufacturer. Can it be the world's biggest tech conceiver, innovator? Um, I, I think it can, it remains to be seen. Um, 
but yes, in the yes. game, I'll just tell you, in the game, in the game sector in Chengdu alone, the government set up an industrial park in which there are 300 gaming companies, computer games, mobile games, 300. You have a unique ecosystem in China that's evolved partly through, you could say, Chinese values, but also through regulation and the restriction of other services. Yeah. Uh, but you have genuine, legitimate hits there now, like WeChat and, oh. and Alibaba. Although they too struggle to, to globalize, even though they have such a massive local market adoption. Well, I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say about what they have done to pull away from the pack. Like, what are their unique innovations? I, I, I was talking to someone who said that, you know, one of the extraordinary things about the mobile ecosystem in China is that when you actually leave China and come to the United States, it actually feels like you're stepping back in time. Mm. But the things you assume you should be able to do, uh, like um, pay for anything with your with your phone, share money, uh, book things all through a mobile service, are much more disjointed in the United States. Yeah, I mean that is one benefit of a big centralized government <laughs> um, is is that you can get stuff like that done, and it does feel that way. I mean, it's it's true when you come back from China, there are things that you miss, uh, particularly in those kind of electronic technologies that were, they were latecomers and they can leapfrog us. Um, now some of the things that look forward actually on the surface actually look kind of nostalgic. Like when you look at the graphic format of WeChat or any of the big Chinese online platforms, they look super busy, super old fashioned. They look like... They look like 90s internet? Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Or, you know, or even the 50s, they, they just look super busy. Um, but to me, that's the innovation. Like that's where they pulled away from. Like Google likes everything clean. Facebook likes most things pretty clean. Right. Chinese consumers don't. And, um, and it's probably related to the way they process information as well. I mean, we we have a very sort of West Coast meets Scandinavian design aesthetic now that uh, running through software companies. But I remember someone years ago I interviewed a Chinese tech entrepreneur, and he talked. He explained to me that the way Chinese look at information is the way they like the way they play mahjong. I mean, when you play mahjong, it's not chess. You're always scouring the board for opportunities. And when Chinese people look at a screen, they're also scouring at looking for interesting bits. They don't just look left to right the way we do. Yeah, that's interesting. I buy that. I think that's a really good observation. I visited a film company on my last trip to China, which was just last week, and they were trying to make animation for the global market for children. And they had the most complex characters filling their animation, you know, things that even looked complex. They looked like Tang Dynasty bronzes. And it's like, <laughs> you know, learn from Pokemon. Two horns is enough. <laughs> but it'll work for China. And yeah. they were very frustrated with their American writers who, um, who they thought kind of dumbed it down. Well, Americans should be paying attention now because I think for many Hollywood films, China has become the biggest market. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if it wasn't for China, Transformers, <laughs> the, the franchise probably wouldn't still be going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the last Transformers, I think they destroyed Chicago, uh, which probably appealed to a lot of audiences over there. Um, one of the other markets you're spending a lot of time looking at, and it's one that's always been close to my heart as far as interest goes, is in Indonesia. Yeah. As, as we spoke about at the start of this podcast. And uh, I remember going on research trips there, you know, almost... Uh, seven, seven or eight years ago, and I was just blown away by the adoption of mobile technologies. Uh, they, they were some of the most socially networked 
people I'd met on the planet, uh, right up there with the Brazilians and uh, you know, and what you see in South America. What, what do you think is going on at Ground Zero in Indonesia right now? It's interesting. It's a great contrast to China. Um, you know, in Indonesia, there's like all of human experience on the street, online, at all times. You know, so there's po- politics that are really boisterous and active. There's religion, uh, big cross currents of religion. There's um, incredibly vital, dynamic, often naughty pop culture that goes on. And the society is very, very social in the way that China is too. Uh, but it has this layer of free expression that China does not. So I think part of it, Mike, is. Java is such a densely populated place. You know, it's 150 million people on an island the size of Illinois. <laughs> um, and, you know, Australia. What's the population of Australia now? Uh, including koalas and kangaroos? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, I think it's about 20 million. Yeah, and so the landmass of Australia is roughly equal to the landmass of Indonesia, and Indonesia's got 250 million people. Yeah. Most of them in Java. Um, and so I think when you take the social aspect of culture there. Indonesians would rather talk to their friends than watch TV or go to a movie. It's what they do socially right. and with their free time. Um, and do they use these platforms differently, do you think, to the way teens would use it in, in the United States? Well, I'll give you a story. I was walking in a beautiful town in northern, on the northern coast of East Java called Kudus. It has a lot of uh, Chinese influence in the town. Overseas Chinese came there very early. It's the cigarette capital. It's a little more prosperous than other Indonesian cities and I was walking there so it has these small gangways uh, through uh, these beautiful neighborhoods of old homes and around the corner came these uh, girls just out of their Islamic school in full headdress and and dress almost completely covered and they were in junior high school and Hmm. and they soon waved me over mr. 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 where are you from they wanted to know everything about me which is typical and then they wanted their picture taken with me and then um, I thought, okay, but what am I going to do with my picture? You know, it's like, can I get all their emails? And they go, Mr. Mr. Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the face, one of the girls got my Facebook address. And before you know it, I had 80 new friends, not just the ones who I had my picture with, but their friends too, who are now, so now my Facebook feed has all of these Islamic middle school girls and it looks really dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, must, it must be a, uh, you, you're almost like kind of an anthropologist now, like in the village, right? you, you, you've kind of connected the whole village. Yeah, I guess so. Now, I, if, I, if I had a mind, I could like actually go in and look at all of their messages to one another. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it, it's, it's just very, very active. And, uh, you know, part of it might be that, that, you know, TV and movies in the Indonesian language for Indonesian audiences just aren't satisfactory, but your friends are very entertaining. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the, the way business seems to operate differently is what the, I, I was always struck by the kind of buccaneer uh, pirate culture yeah. <laughs> over there where I think you mentioned it before where you have big business gangsters and politics uh, has sort of reached a, a kind of a, a constantly shifting alliance. Yeah, yeah. Which, it's one of the most mobbed up places and uh, it's kind of fascinating uh, to think how has Jakarta grown into a city that looks in a lot of ways like the glamorous up-to-date cities you find elsewhere in Asia and yet the corruption is so deep 
Like, how did that happen? It's like there's still something there mediating quality for people. And in, I actually would say that when it comes to architecture or an interior design, like Indonesians have figured out things that China hasn't quite figured out yet. Right. Like, um, China's great at exteriors, but the interiors of buildings, even the glamorous airports, seem to fall apart right away. You know, uh, malfunctioning restrooms in the Beijing airport. Indonesia's like got the interiors down. <laughs> They're gorgeous. And, um, you know, I, I think part of that is just, in some ways, the elite in Indonesia are just much more cosmopolitan. But they figured out how to traverse this world, this kind of gangster economy with the global economy, which is a kind of genius there. Is, is it is it difficult for big global brands or even technology startups to do business there? Uh, I mean, we've seen with China that China's had a long history of bringing in Western companies and to some extent uh, some succeed and prosper, others get fleeced and get regulated out of the market. But Indonesia seems a bit like a, more like the Wild West. Yeah, it's not hard to have a presence in Indonesia for a global technology company, you know, let's say a social media company, but it's hard to monetize it uh, because they're just using the global product. They're not using something that's localized yet. And because there's barriers, there's legal barriers. Uh, that might change with the ASEAN Free Trade Accord and with TPP if that ever passes. When you, I guess, combine these two things we've been talking about, uh, the, the rise of the Asian economies and markets and demographics and population change, where do you think we're likely to see the new sources of dynamism in the world? Like, where are the places in the world where the, do you think over the next 10 to 20 years where we will see the most vigor? Wow, that is a super hard question. <laughs> um, I think it's going to be in ways that people like you and maybe me will find unsatisfying, which is I just see the growth of the fast follower economy growing and growing. It's been the recipe for wealth for the last 60, 70 years in the world, which is to just copy the leaders and do it a little better for your local market and you can get to a middle-class economy. Right. And um, that's how you create a consumer economy and so, so on. There'll be global innovators all over the place, but the real winners, the real wealth will become, will be in this fast-following economy. So you mean like, you know, good ideas executed well, uh, targeting a new middle class. Right, right. So in, instead of the Sony, it'll be the Samsung or, you know, you know, people say Samsung's an innovator. Now we can argue about that, you know, certainly in some areas. but. It's gotten to be one of the world's greatest companies by being a fast follower company. But these new markets we're talking about, there are places like Indonesia, yeah. Vietnam, even Iran. Right, you know, right. They, they, so they will have their version. Markets. They will have their versions of all of this. Right. Um, and you know, another thing I think where the world is lacking, where there's huge opportunity, is if you look at the United States and you see the size of the entertainment sector here, it's about 12 percent of our economy. In most of these other economies, it's only about 1%. So you, if you could find ways to free the expression up just enough in Iran, in China, you would have trillions of dollars of economic activity in the entertainment sector. Ted, it's been a great pleasure meeting you and having you on the show. Thank you very much. My pleasure. It's a pleasure for me too. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.